Yeah. Well, welcome here, friends. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho. If we haven't had a chance to meet uh, already, it's our privilege and pleasure to have you with us today. And um, I want to invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats. The effectiveness of submarines in World War II convinced the American Navy that undersea warfare would play an increasingly vital role in the future of any conflicts in the globe. And so post-World War II, the rush was on to see who could develop the best submarines. And the American Navy uh, started some pilot projects, and they settled on a teardrop-shaped hull, which ended up being the standard for all subsequent submarine shapes. And in 1959, the US launched SS-581, the blueback. And this was the first submarine that incorporated revolutionary engineering technology, improvements like a double hull design and diesel propulsion that allowed with the shape for incredible maneuverability and speed and stealth like no other submarine before them. And the pilot project was so successful that other nations began to race to try and pattern their submarines after the blueback. So the Netherlands, the Chinese, and the Japanese all began to develop teardrop-shaped submarines. And recently, uh, my son Jared and I, we were down in Portland, and we came across the only remaining example of the Barbell-class submarine. SS-581 was decommissioned in 1990, but it was salvaged and saved and towed to Portland, and it's now docked at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, and you can take a tour of it, which we did. And the thing that struck me about it, we actually were privileged to take a tour with one of the men who served on a barbell-class sub during the Cold War, and then another gentleman who was part of uh, the Submariners in the 1980s, both of them on those classes of sub. And so we got a bunch of inside stories on what life was like. And one of the things that was striking to me that they kept talking about was this pilot project. They felt that they were part of some kind of advanced uh, infrastructure that was breaking in and breaking new ground in the world. It was the future of submarines. And when a pilot project was successful, then uh, entire industries and people change and the landscape changes around it forever. And this fall at Jericho, we've been studying the book of Galatians. And one of the things that the New Testament lays out for us in this book in particular is that God has, at various points in history, launched what we might call pilot projects, attempts to set humanity in a new direction. And so God did this with Abram and Abraham. God came to Abraham and gave Abraham a mission and a commission and said a covenant with Abraham and said, Abraham, through your family, all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. I'm going to do something fresh and new. And just like you or I, Abraham struggled. And his mission to be a blessing was not fully realized. And God's pilot project did not reach 
God's ultimate goal. 400 years later, God miraculously intervenes in Moses and in the life of the people of Israel. And the ancient Israelites are enslaved. And God meets Moses and says, you are going to lead my people. And I'm going to take them out of slavery. And God gifts them the law, the Torah, a set of rules intended to establish healthy human relationships. But yet again, because we're humans and because of our inclinations and tendencies, things got off track. And God's pilot project of a model of human community to bless the nations got stunted. And the Apostle Paul argues strongly in Galatians that when Jesus came and when Jesus lived among us, died for us and was raised to life again by the power of God, this launched a new age, a new era in God's pilot project. And God's current pilot project for flourishing in human community, the church was initiated. And the church is not bound, Paul says, by the same ancient Torah or the law that bound the ancient Israelites. The church is bound by a new unifying law. The law, Paul calls it the law of love. And in Galatians 5.14, Paul says, fulfilling the law of love is our mission and mandate. And he says, really the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the mission. And as the church, we're called to love each other and to love our neighbors and to, in this way, express God's desire in such radical ways that the world around us will know and will see that there is a different way of living, a healthy and vibrant way of living. And Paul, as he rounds the corner into the last chapter of this book in chapter 6, he's going to preach about 14 sermons in 18 verses. And his intention in chapter 6, it's a highly warm and personable section, and he wants to answer the question, but if we want to love each other, what does loving each other well actually look like? What does it mean to fulfill the law of love that Christ gave for us? When we commit to fully living into that and being a part of God's pilot project for humanity, what are we committing ourselves to? So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Galatians chapter 6. And we're going to look first at the first 10 verses. And Paul lays out four answers to the question, what does loving well look like? And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. So Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 1, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, those who are mature, should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. In this way, you obey or you fulfill the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're really only fooling yourself. You're not that important. <laughs> Pay careful attention to your own work. Then you're going to get the satisfaction of a job well done. You won't need to compare yourselves to anyone else, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. 
Those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers sharing all good things with them. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who harvest only to satisfy their sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So, let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those in the household of faith. And in this little section, Paul heads in a number of different directions to try and give us a picture of what loving well looks like. And we see right away in chapter 6, verse 1, a dose of realism. And Paul is just very clear, and he says, listen, you're going to sin. You, like others who have been a part of God's family from the beginning of time, are going to walk off track. So what should we do when that happens? And when that happens, loving each other well means, first and foremost, telling each other the truth. If another believer is overcome by some sin, Paul says, gently and humbly help that person back on to the right path. Now, this instruction that Paul gave for the Galatians and for us is challenging. It's much easier to simply say, you know what, you do you, I'll do me, you might be off track a little bit, but I'm just going to worry about myself and whatever happens to you is fine. But see, at Jericho, one of our values is authentic community. And that means that we care enough about each other to love each other well and to love each other deeply in humility and with gentleness. And that means helping others when they are walking off of the path, helping them back onto the right path. It means if you see something, say something. Notice the language that Paul uses to describe sin here. It's the language of a snare or a trap. Someone has gotten caught in something. And Jesus says in John 8, verse 34, the one who sins is a slave to sin. There's, there's, a, there's an entrapment that happens when you get entangled in some kind of sin. And Paul picks up on this language and he says, if, if a person has gotten trapped and you see it and you notice it and you just keep walking and think, well, it's too bad for them, they got stuck in that problem, that's not a loving act. Sometimes when we are engaged in or caught in sin, walking away from God's purposes and God's plans for us, we've walked so far that we can't actually get free on our own. Or sometimes our, we've become so calloused and hardened in our hearts that we're not even sometimes aware that we're off the path. And we need the compassionate and gentle help of another person who is godly, who's filled with God's spirit, who's filled with the fruit that Paul talked about at the end of chapter five, with patience and gentleness and goodness to come alongside of us 
and to provide loving and gentle correction to us. And see, this cuts directly across the grain of individualism in our North American society. Because loving someone well in community is to help them overcome the brokenness and the suffering and sin by reaching out with gentleness and with humility. But that's hard work, and it's tough to do it well. Biblical scholar and author uh, N.T. Wright puts a helpful point on this, and he says this, part of the inner workings of a healthy church is for those with spiritual maturity to exercise a spirit of admonition. You cannot just wait for the spirit to make things clear to individuals so that nobody has to say anything. You can't just wait around and pray about it and say, God, I just hope you, by your spirit, could you reveal to that person over there how they're sinning? It doesn't work that way. It's not an act of love to continue to let sin ravage the life or lives of individuals that you care about. Sitting around and not doing anything, praying, isn't loving that person well. Sometimes we are called to move into action, to move into the life of another person and to speak out a healthy challenge. It's issued and the change comes by the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So sometimes I hear people saying, well, it's not my job. It's the Spirit's job to change people, which is true. I just have to love them. But sometimes loving them means speaking truth to them and walking with them in that journey towards health and wholeness. And so as a community, we are called to a ministry of mutual admonition. Admonition is a challenging word, and it's hard work because moving into someone's life that you care about and letting them know that they're off course is never fun, but it is loving. If your kids are playing out on 64th Avenue, saying, that's fine, they'll be okay, we'll just let them do them, don't worry about it. Not warning them that there's danger there is a non-loving act. And so we would step into that and say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't go out onto the street. You're going to get hurt. It's the same way, that's a ministry of mutual admonition. Opening our own lives up to say, do you see things in me that need correction? and then speaking those in love to other people around us. This, the description of what it means to love well continues in verse 2, where Paul says that this is one way that we share each other's burdens. And when we do this, we're fulfilling the law. But it's not the Torah, the law from the Old Testament. It's the law of Christ that we're fulfilling in the responsibility to love each other well. 18th century journalist and author George Augustus Henry Salah said, God has ordered that men, men and women, being in need of each other, should learn to love each other and bear each other's burdens. Again, in a culture that really idolizes individualism and the self-made person, it's very hard for us to admit need, to admit weakness, 
to admit that I have a burden that I cannot carry because sometimes that can be perceived as weakness and we talked about that a few Sundays ago. But when we don't open up and admit that you have needs, admit that you need, you have a burden that you are carrying, then it robs other people around you of the joy of fulfilling the law of Christ. God has given so many people in this community gifts of mercy and compassion. And if you don't admit that you're in need, they can't exercise those gifts fully. They're robbed of the privilege of living out the fulfillment of the law and love. And Jericho, I want to say to you that as one of your pastors, this is something that I see you doing well. That when there is burdens that are acknowledged and needs that are put forward, I see you moving into places and saying, I want to help with that. I want to shoulder that load with you. I think about the meals that go over to people when they're in need. And Josh and Chi have been having a hard time on a lot of fronts recently. And many of you have stepped in and, and uh, helped. And People in our community struggling with addictions or mental illness or a sustained high-challenge family situation, I see you walking with them and loving them well. People struggling with addictions or crippling sexual sin or financial burdens, I see you stepping in to help people that's being burdened. And this too is hard work because it, it takes an attentiveness to others around us to say and to see, oh, I wonder if there is needs that I might be able to meet. And some are more patient at it than others, and some are gifted at it in unique ways by the Spirit. Uh, Pastor Wally is one of those people, and I'm so glad to have him part of the staff team. But it's a work that all of us and each of us is called to. Nobody at Jericho gets to say, well, you know, mercy isn't really my spiritual gift. So I'll just let that burden go to someone else. It's for all of us to bear one another's burdens because it's a law, a law of love that we fulfill. And so whether, if you're a part of this church, whether this is your first Sunday or whether you've been here for almost 15 years since you opened the doors, you have a part to play in this. You're a part of this call and this responsibility. And we are called in this to a ministry of action, but a ministry of empathy, of empathetic action. Not just to say, oh, I love you in this community of faith. Be warmed, be fed, James says, and then go on your way. Actually help them get warm. Actually help feed them. That is a ministry of empathetic action that helps shoulder the load when people are in need. The text then continues to describe a third responsibility that we have of loving well, and that is taking responsibility for our own actions. We're not to compare ourselves to others, this text says, but we are to fully live into the gifts and the mission and responsibilities that God has given to you. Again, this is not just about words and about talking. It's about how we actually live. Paul says, if you pay attention to your own work and you do a job well, there's satisfaction that comes from that if you don't compare yourself to others. But you are responsible for your own conduct. 
Francis Bacon said, he that gives good advice builds with one hand. He that gives good counsel and example builds with both. But he that gives good admonition and a bad example builds with one hand and pulls down with the other. In other words, your actions have to be congruent with your words. If you're going to build someone or something up and contribute to them, take responsibility for the way in which you act. And there's a deep kind of humility here that's modeled for us in different places in the New Testament. One that says, I'm not only taking responsibility for my own actions, but I also am sharing responsibility in a community for life together. I'm going to take responsibility for our actions. And we are called as a community and as individuals to a ministry of humility. Paul continues in chapter 6 verse 7 where he says, remember you always harvest what you plant. And so if you plant bad things, negative things in your life, it should not surprise you if you reap a harvest of decay and death. But if you plant spirit-enabled, healthy things in your life, if you live to please the Spirit of God, then you will reap everlasting life. And Paul says, when you keep doing this and you keep planting and you keep reaping a harvest of blessings, that is part of the process of doing good to everyone. In verse 10, he says, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the family of faith. So he has concentric circles here that are widening out and saying, we want to do good to each other, but the law of love doesn't stop within the four walls of the church. The law of love extends itself out beyond the community of faith. And lots of ink has been spilled these days about how religion is really what's wrong with the world. But a more careful reading of history would suggest otherwise. For example, if you look at the first three centuries uh, of um, the, the post, the early church experience, One of the primary things that's written about when outsiders are looking in at the Christians is saying, I cannot figure these people out. They don't just love the people around them in their communities. They love like total strangers on the street. They extend compassion and grace and they think about how, what it would look like to care for others and the well-being of others and their culture as a whole. In fact, in A.D. 314, a man by the name of Eusebius was made the bishop of Caesarea. And in Caesarea, uh, famine and war had recently come to that part of the world. And then the plague hit early in the 4th century. And the populace was already weakened and decimated and unable to withstand that additional blow. And so people began fleeing the city and just forsaking people. And this was one of the uh, larger cities in that region. And at least one group, Roman historians said, stayed behind, and that was the Christians. A bishop of the city and a historian of the early church, Eusebius, recorded in his book, Church History, that during the plague, all day long, 
Some of the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers had no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine, and they distributed bread to them all. The Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips, and the city and the population glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. The emperor, Julian, a few decades later, who himself had forsaken Christianity, he's known as Julian the Apostate, he writes to a pagan priest and he says, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by our pagan priests, then I think of the pious Galileans, in other words, the Christians, they observed this fact and they devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. And all men see that our people lack aid from us. See, throughout the ministry and history of the church, the mission of loving well and caring well for those not just who are part of our community, but those who are outside of it. The mission of doing good to everyone is a part of our mission. We are to do good whenever we have the opportunity. Whether that's in a classroom where you spend extra time with a student who needs support, whether that's in your neighborhood where you're a person of peace, where you're, whether it's as a parent and there's kids in your kids' group of friends that need extra support and love and you bring them into your home and demonstrate and feed them and demonstrate love to them that they may not experience in their setting, or whether it's uh, being a part of our team that heads down to Guatemala every year and builds homes and distributes food and wheelchairs to those or whether it's just the way you use your resources and, and give to charities that help others. At the very heart of Christianity is a self-giving, generous love. And if that's at the heart of our message, it must also, says N.T. Wright, be at the heart of our lifestyle. Sacrificial love. And so at Jericho, we are called to a ministry of compassion. And I think here about so many people who do this so well. I think about Joel, who every week goes and serves at the Langley Food Bank on Friday mornings. I think about Jenna, who uh, is part of a team and leads a team that puts on a community meal for people who uh, maybe not, don't have anyone in their lives in South Surrey every week. And there are countless, countless, countless examples of people who in ministry of compassion, either very privately or publicly, demonstrate the love of Jesus. And so, again, Jericho, I want to say, keep pressing into this. You're doing it well. And it's something that is um, a real witness and testimony to people that are engaging with us and our neighbors.
And then Paul, after he gives these instructions, turns a little bit of a corner in verse 11. And if you look in your Bibles, it might actually be actually all caps. And he says, notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. And what is happening here is that it was customary in Paul's time to use a scribe, somebody that was trained to write, and you would give verbal dictation to them, and then they would write it all down. But if you're writing to people that you knew, you wanted to also let them know that, you know, you knew them, and you wanted to put a personal touch in there. And so usually at the end, you would kind of say, all right, scribe, you're done. And you take the pen yourself, and you'd kind of write it, finish the letter off, so that the people that were receiving it could know that this was really from you. It was authentic, and it really, you could put your own personal touch on it as well. It's like your Christmas cards, right? They're going to send out. Instead of just getting them printed at Costco, like you actually write a little note at the end, like saying, you know, something about your life and your family. Um, they know it's from you because your picture's on it, but it's another way of adding that personal touch. And that's what Paul is doing here. And he finishes writing the book as he started it. It's very warm, but he's also clear that he wants to draw a stark contrast between these false teachers who have come into the life of the people in Galatia and this church and his own work and ministry. Because throughout the book, he's been sounding the alarm and saying, hey, there are things that you need to pay attention to. And these false teachers have been advocating for people to follow the three elements of Torah, food laws, Sabbath observance, and circumcision. And so Paul is going to draw this strong contrast between the false teachers and himself. And he's going to say, you know what? You're going to start to see again that these false teachers are like wolves in sheep's clothing. They are not to be trusted because they are leading you in an unhelpful direction. So this is what Paul says, writing with his own hand in Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised, they just want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. Even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so that they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. They're playing a numbers game, Paul says. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle because those people are the new people of God. They're part of God's pilot project. From now on, he says, don't let anybody trouble me with these things. <laughs> I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And Paul draws this stark contrast between the false teachers and himself. The false teachers, they're pretending to come into the Galatian Christian community 
and focus on what's good for them and try to be helpful. But Paul says, actually, they're focused on trying to look good to others. They're not actually focused on what's good for the community. And Paul says in chapter 6, verse 14, if, I'm gonna, if you're going to accuse me of focusing on something, I want you to know that I am focused on something, all right, but I'm focused on trying to please God. That's my one desire and focus. And see, friends, this isn't just Paul reminding the Galatians about a focus of trying to please God. One of the challenges that is going to come our way, and we've already experienced a little bit of it as we step into ownership of a building, is that we can think to ourselves, yes, we've arrived. (laughs) We're looking good. The building's starting to look good. We got it going on. But we need to keep in our mind always that the objective is not to boast about the building or even about the good and amazing ministry opportunities that God is putting in front of us as a church. Our objective remains the same. We say, Jesus, we want to please you. That is what the church needs to be about. Jesus, we want to follow you. Jesus, we want to make much of you in this neighborhood, in this city. We want to make much, not about our own name. We don't need to make a name for ourselves. We want to make a name for Jesus here in this place because our focus is to try and please the Lord in all that we do. In Paul's day, the false teachers were trying to weasel out of preaching about the cross. They're trying to avoid it. Paul says they actually are trying to preach and teach that, uh, Paul says, I'm trying to teach that the cross alone can save. They don't want to avoid the cross. And so Paul says, on one hand, they're trying to avoid it. On the other hand, he says, my whole life has become defined by what happened on the cross. My freedom that I experience has come through it. And so if I'm going to boast about anything, it's going to be boasting about that. And the false teachers, Paul says, they don't want to get persecuted. They don't want to get pushback from people. So they make it a really lowest common denominator gospel. And they don't want to teach that the cross alone can save. But Paul says, I am okay with being actively ridiculed and persecuted both by Jewish zealots and pagan rulers because of my convictions about the person and work of Jesus. And Paul says he actually, and if you read his stories in the book of Acts, you see he was. He was physically harmed for his convictions. When he talks about uh, bearing on his body the scars of belonging to Jesus. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was persecuted for preaching about the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And I think today about many of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church in different corners of the world who still today, even right now, as we're seated here in comfort and ease, are suffering because of their convictions. And it's a reminder to us to pray for them, pray for for the persecuted church. Paul says these false teachers are hyped about a lot of the wrong things. They're hyped about numbers. They're focused on how many converts they can get to themselves, how easy they can make it to follow Jesus. What does it say on the annual report they sent to headquarters? 
And this, again, is something that we have to wrestle with in our day and in our time. Because in some churches, the numbers are the most important things. And the show, it's got to be big, it's got to be awesome, smoke, lights, and the focus is on how many people are in attendance. And I'm not denying that God can do things in those places. I just want to say that at Jericho, that's not our calling. We're not focused on width. We're focused on depth. What kind of people are we developing for mission and service in the world? See, here at Jericho, our conviction is that if you're a part of this community, we have a responsibility to help you grow deeper and deeper as a disciple, to take those next steps of following Jesus. And currently, this does not require a smoke machine or fancy teleprompters. It does require, though, that we share a mutual commitment to following Jesus and embodying God's love everywhere that we go. And so I love this about our elders team. Yes, we have a responsibility and a fiduciary responsibility to watch and think carefully about the numbers. But more often and most often, our focus is spent in prayer and in shepherding actively and saying, how are those people doing? What's going on in the life of our church? What are the opportunities that God's putting in front of us to reach our neighbors? And it's a wonderful privilege to be able to do that and to see a team that's really obsessed with helping people grow and develop in their followership of Jesus. The worship team's gonna come and as we wrap up this series in Galatians and next weekend we're moving into Advent. And I'm struck by how compelling the, the images that Paul lays out for us in the book of Galatians are about community. It's this compelling vision of loving one another well that I want to strive for and we want to strive for together. And we've seen again those four things in the first 10 verses that need to mark and characterize our life together here as a community. And they're things that are hard to do well. But when we do them well, there's a richness and a depth to them. There's a freedom that comes from doing them. And so let me remind you of those four callings that we have as the people of God. The first one is to grace-fueled mutual admonition. That's a mouthful. <laughs> the question there is, who is speaking into your life? And whose life are you speaking into? Is there something in your life that you need to open up to another person? Is there another person around you that you feel prompted and say, you know, in, in loving, compassionate humility, I want to step into their life and speak to them about an area. Maybe you need to have a coffee. Maybe you need to, in that coffee, just say to another person that you know and trust or in your small group, I want to open my life up to you. Are there growth edges that you see in me that I need to pay more attention to? Can you help me with that? The second reminder was to burden sharing empathetic action. If you're in a place where you need a burden to be shared, are you letting other people know about that? Because if you're not, 
then we can't help you with that. It's one reason why we have our prayer team available at Jericho every weekend. And so this Sunday, that's Meg and myself and Gary and Betty, and they're going to move to the back now. And if you would like someone to share a burden with, these are trusted and wise people. And you can just say, I have this burden that I've been carrying, and would you pray with me about that? Maybe you're feeling good, and you can say, I want to celebrate with someone. Maybe you see other people around you that are struggling, and you say, can we pray together to support them and see and ask God for wisdom, how we could do that together? The third one was that self-awareness. And maybe for you, the battle is an internal one. You feel like, I'm comparing myself to other people all the time. I look around at a place like Jericho, and I just think I could never measure up. These people have got it all together. Trust me, we don't. (laughs) But for you, maybe that's a wrestle. And maybe for you, you just need to release some of that to God today. Because God's not calling you to another person's mission. God is calling you to be whom God has invited you to be. And you don't need to compare yourself to other people, but you do need to fully live into that which God has invited you to. And there's work for you to do, and it is good work. And the last one is just a sense of lavish compassion rooted in God's grace. And we're coming into a season of Advent in the month of December where our culture shifts and thinks about things like generosity and thinks about things like reaching beyond ourselves. And maybe for you, you think to yourself, oh, Brad, 11 months of the year I've been loving my family well. I don't know if I can make it another month of, uh, and spending time with them in an intensified way. Maybe you need an extra measure of God's grace. Or maybe you look at the resources you have and you think, "Ah, I don't know if I have enough resources to be generous. I need to spend it on me and mine. Ask God, sit with that question. God, how would you invite me into a more generous space this Christmas season? You might feel God's gentle invitation to open up your hand and maybe open up your heart in a new way. And it's hard work. And that's why the text says, don't give up. You got to keep after it. When you fail, when you get off track, just walk back and say, God, I'm coming back to you. And so the two songs that we're going to sing now in response to worship really are organized as prayers. And all of the songs that we've sang today are actually, um, we've used the word we in each and every one of them. We've pulled all of the personal pronouns out of them because we want, even in our sung worship, to get at that notion of how we want to live as a community of faith together. And we want to ask God for a fresh touch on us as a community and on each one as an individual. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me 